Once you are made in Christ Jesus, made anew by the Spirit, there's no undoing that. And now for Fundamental Issues. Good evening, everybody. I hope that everybody's having a great night tonight. I'm going to just open us up with a word of prayer. Abba Papa, hallowed be thy name. I simply pray that the Holy Spirit be all over everything relating to what I'm about to preach about. That the Holy Spirit fill this place and not just this place, but the Holy Spirit guide my tongue, my body language, my very thoughts and how I perceive my notes in front of me. I pray that it won't just be now, but if anybody is to listen later, Father God, that the Holy Spirit will still be presently moving. I pray the truth will prevail and that you will be glorified, that your name will be lifted high, that Christ Jesus will be sought more, that he will be clung to, Father God. I pray that he'll be our foundation and our strength. I pray that we will not tire or get weary, but like an eagle, we will soar. We thank you and we love you, Lord. We pray this prayer through the precious and the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior, and in the spirit of truth. Amen. All righty. So this month has had a fairly interesting challenge. As a matter of fact, I was struggling to figure out what it was, but I came down to the conclusion that it was discernment. And then I had to figure out what I was discerning. And it was primarily fundamental issues in the church. Now, the reason why I say this is because they're very debatable. And whenever you're in the church for a long period of time, you hear a lot of opinions. And these fundamental issues are the ones that you hear the most opinions for. And I had a dream. And in the dream, there was a reference to a past dream. And in the dream, it was stated that my ears were hurting. And the reference to the past dream was when an individual was crowded around with a bunch of people that had different opinions. And they kept shouting in his ears. And he just wanted to cover his ears and run away because he couldn't discern what was actually happening. So today, I'm going to preach on fundamental issues, salvational issues primarily, because I can't talk about them all, but I'll talk about the most important ones. So firstly, let's start with who is God. And I say this because if you misplace your faith because you misrepresent God, I'm afraid to tell you this, friend, but your faith will fail you. Now, there are two main perspectives of God in the church. I'm not talking about God is love or God is peace or God is justice, but I'm talking about the Trinity versus modalism. Now, modalism is something I mentioned in the past sermon, but I didn't actually explain what it was. So I'm going to give two depictions here. I'm not going to say which is which. And you can just think in your mind, just so you know where you are right now, which one sounds right? Do you think that God is one God that is individually manifested in three forms at different times for different purposes? Or do you think that God is one God and three simultaneously existing persons? Now, the first one is modalism. Now, the reason why modalism is so darn popular and you hear it so much in the church is because of how easy and simple it is to explain. I'm going to give you two examples. You've probably heard them be preached. One of them is just look at your refrigerator. You see that refrigerator? It makes ice. It makes water and it can make mist. You see how God can exist in three forms. That's simple. It does not take much intellectualism to understand and ingrain that on your heart. Just look at the refrigerator. But it's wrong. It's simple and it sounds right, but it's not possible biblically. Another example, a much more modern one, is if an individual was to say, just look at God as three versions. V1 is the father. You got to release the father in your life. V2 is the son. You got to release the son in your life. And you can't forget about V3. That's the spirit. You got to release the spirit in your life. It's simple. It's using modern terminology to make it sound good and catchy, and many people will hold on to it and think it's good doctrine, but it's not biblical. Now, the Trinity, on the other hand, 
is difficult to understand. As a matter of fact, it's kind of impossible to fully understand, but I'm going to try and do it to the best of my ability. So the Trinity tells us, right, that there is one God, but three simultaneously existing persons. Each of them is still God. Now, the persons exist in subservience to each other. You'll find that the Holy Spirit is subservient to the Son and to the Father, while the Son is subservient to the Father. And each of them carry out a different purpose, though they seem to be in the same general ballpark. When you look at the source and the cause for creation, divine revelation, and Christ works on the earth, you find that to be coming from the Father. Now, when you look at the means in which these things were carried out, you see it through the Son and you see it through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is all according to gotquestions.org. If you want to read more deeply into that thorough explanation, you can. But that's as simple as it could possibly be. And it may seem paradoxical, especially if you look at it through the perspective of human limitations. Now, we all understand we serve a boundless God, correct? Amen. We serve an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. We can't do that. God simply does not have our restrictions. And to look at God as though he has our restrictions will limit us for how we can see God to truly be. And if we misperceive God and place our faith in something that's not the God of the Bible as the God of the Bible is, it's going to fail us. False faith. Now, I do want to give a case for the Trinity to show that it is biblical. Firstly, though, modalism cannot exist biblically because we see things like Matthew 3, 16 through 17, where it states after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and setting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. If God just exists as different manifestations individually, not simultaneously, it's not possible to see multiple of them in the same scene. As a matter of fact, there's no reason for multiple of them to be in the same scene. It's the same God, just different manifestations. Why would Jesus have to pray to a different manifestation of himself? I mean, or in John 1, where the son said he is to be with God. How is the son with God? They're both the same manifestation. Isn't the son just God? The language doesn't work. Biblically, modalism is impossible. It's heresy. Now, on to the Trinity, how it's backed up biblically. I'm going to make a case that Dr. David Wood made. Most of this comes from him. I take no credit. He's a great debater, and he made a simple case for the Trinity throughout the Bible. Now, first, the word starts with it. When you look at Genesis 1, 1 through 2, it states, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. See, the distinction between God and the Spirit? Remember that. You go on to verse 26, same book. It says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the wild sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Plurality of majesty. It's used, though at this point of the story, for Old Testament point of view, it's kind of a mystery as to why. You continue on. You have Isaiah 9, 6. It states, For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the question is, how is a child to be a mighty God? Then in Isaiah 48, 16, the sovereign Lord is speaking and he says, Come closer and listen to this. From the beginning, I have told you plainly what would happen. And now the sovereign Lord and his spirit have sent me with this message. The question, how can God be sent by God along with the spirit of God? 
You see me continuing on Zechariah 12, 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourned for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. Now, at this point, God is known to be spirit immaterial. So how can he be pierced unless he has a material body? You see the consistencies over the Old Testament before it's even made to be abundantly clear. Now, that's just the Old Testament. Until Jesus came along, then it's a lot more clear. He told his followers that he is the final judge of all people. The thing is, in the Old Testament, it says that Yahweh is the final judge of all people. Jesus said that he is the one who raises the dead at the resurrection. But the thing is, in the Old Testament, it says Yahweh is the one that raises the people for the resurrection, raises the dead at the resurrection. Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, claims to be the Lord of David, claims to be the I am of Exodus, claims to be greater than God's temple. He also claims to have an absolutely unique relationship with the Father, that he can answer prayers, that he's present wherever his followers are gathered, that he is with his followers forever, and that he has all the authority on the heaven and earth. Now, the way that Jesus is talking, it sounds a lot like Jesus is God, but not the same as the Father, you know, a distinct being. And in the Old Testament, it was made abundantly clear that the Spirit of God is abundantly distinct from the Father. See, what we're seeing here is that he's making claims that only the father can make, but he's still drawing attention to the father. They are all God. You see, we're seeing divine attributes, yet distinct beings. The father is not the son, nor is he the spirit. The son is not the father, nor is he the spirit. The spirit is not the father, nor is he the son. It's made abundantly clear throughout scripture, not just one part, but throughout it all. Now, I'd like to go on to my second point, the second fundamental. I hope that y'all got the Trinity down. Now, it is a very complex thing, but you can see clearly it's biblical. There's no other choice. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet they're not the same entity. It's one God, three persons. And some will say, you know, I deny the Trinity because it's just it's not in the Bible. The word's not in the Bible. Neither is the Bible. Literally, the word of the Bible is not in the Bible. Neither is omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent. But as David says in Psalms, he cannot escape from the Lord even if he went to hell. So, I mean, the words aren't in the Bible, but are the concepts there? It's easy to refute. Now, my second point is once saved, always following. At first, I was going to say once saved, always saved. But I was looking through the objections to my point so that I could have a comprehensive view. And I couldn't help but notice there was a pretty decent case made that it's not just a declaration of faith. I'm sure that we've all seen it. You know, a televangelist on TV that says, you know, if you pray this prayer with me right now, the Bible says that you'll be saved. It's kind of clear throughout the word. That can't just be it. But firstly, for once saved, always saved. I mean, if you're truly saved, let me read you Colossians 2, 6 through 23. Now, it's a long passage, but I wanted you to see the whole thing because it also warns against things once you become a believer. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you. I'm sorry to stop here, but my voice is getting a little bit raspy. If anybody in the back or just anybody in the audience could potentially give me a water bottle, because I don't want to have to stop because my voice starts cutting out later on while I'm reading this. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world. 
rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. I mean, that's just another example about how Christ is God, continuing on. So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you come to Christ, you are circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. I'm gonna pause there for a little bit, because this would be just about all that you would need to see. Thank you very much. This would be just about all that you would need to see to know that once an individual is truly saved, when that procedure is performed, it can't be undone. When we look at a circumcision of flesh, have you seen anybody that got circumcised and somehow had the procedure undone? The thing is simple. Once the procedure is completed, once you are made in Christ Jesus, made anew by the spirit, there's no undoing that. The thing is, what does it look like to be made new in the spirit? How do you know when you've had this procedure done? What's the confirmation? And I had initially sent a song to A.V., and I would have quoted a song lyric, but there was a little bit of miscommunication, so it wasn't actually played. But it's by enduring. It's by holding on in faith and not letting up, even when things get tough. But I'm going to continue reading this passage. The next one will paint that picture especially clearly. The cutting away of your sinful nature, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions, saying that they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and it grows as God nourishes it. I'm not even done with the passage. As I said, it's a long one, but I wanted to really highlight that warning right there saying they have had visions about these things. Don't let anyone convict you on that basis. How many of you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? Now, this is a bit of a rhetorical question. I'm not actually asking you to answer it out loud, but the sufficiency of Scripture. Because oftentimes, at least what I've seen in the modern church, is that individuals will seek sensation or experience or miracles or some form of further proof beyond God's Word. And I'm not saying it can't be provided. But I am saying that when you look on that and depend upon it as such, you can very easily be deceived and bewitched to false teaching. Now, the particular things that's warning you against here are work-based things for your salvation. When I get into the third point, which is how we are saved, I'll especially respond to that. But just beware and have the Bible as your foundation beyond any earthly miracles that could potentially be used to bewitch you, to deceive you. Because, I mean, I was even studying for this earlier and I was looking at a comment section And it was against oneness. And an individual had commented, you know, Orthodox is going to be the death of the church. I've been in oneness churches and I've I've seen people get healed and, and freed from cigarettes or cured from cancer. But I've never seen it in the Orthodox church. God is clearly moving through this. Apologies for the voice. It just kind of happened subconsciously. But it's interesting. They didn't base their response on the Bible. They didn't base it on God's word or objective truth. But they based it on experience. They based it on individuals that could have claimed to have visions or claimed to have healed. (laughs) 
It's interesting because whenever we look at it like that, we could very easily ignore truth and cling to falsehoods. Continuing on, you have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world? Such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate us as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline. But they provide us no help in conquering a person's evil desires. I wasn't actually planning on saying this at this point in the sermon, but it just kind of came back to my mind, especially since it's so on touch with that verse. And it's that biblically, New Testament. Did you know that even if you were judged on the basis of your best thoughts, on the basis of your best day, on the basis of a highlight reel of your most benevolent actions, if that was all you were judged by, you would still get sent to hell? There is not one point in our lives which we have loved God with all of our heart, mind, and spirit. That's the first commandment. And if you break one of them, you're guilty of breaking them all. We are saved through grace, by faith, in Christ Jesus alone. And that's going to be my third point. But for whatever reason, I just felt it heavy to just stop and say that particular point. Continuing on. So what about always following? Because I said once saved, always following. Now that verse was great for explaining it. But there's a little bit more that can be seen in Romans 11 through 24. I'm probably not going to read all of this, though. Did God people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. Firstly, I want to point out the beauty in that. The Jews denied the salvation that was offered in Christ Jesus. So God made it open to everybody. He used bad for the good of the building of the church and the kingdom. Continuing on. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I'm saying all of this, especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what the Gentiles have. So I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. I also like how Paul is just assuming their acceptance. It's almost as though it's an early promise, though right now they may be in denial. By the end, there will be acceptance. Continuing on, it will be life for those who are dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, the descendants will also be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy, because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. And here's the part that I really wanted to connect on. Why you can't just say that declaration and it be all. Also, the verse that they usually quote, right? You know, believe in your heart and express with your mouth. In the context of the scripture, it's referring to evangelism, not just following after them in a prayer. But that's neither here nor there. The beauty is, well, let me read it right quick. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles who are branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you will receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You were just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. And that's the point that I wanted to get at. Whenever that trusting in God, whenever that faith ceases, that following ceases, just like the original branches, individuals can get cut off. 
It's not just once saved, always saved. Though I do believe if you're truly saved, if you truly undergo that circumcision of the spirit, that you won't even want to stop believing. But this is a testament to it. Once saved and you always serve. It's a change of heart that is shown through expression of will. As the Bible says, faith without works is dead. There's a reason. I'm going to just stop there with the servant. And I want to get on to the final point of the sermon. And that's simply how we're saved. Now, of course, we're saved through grace, by faith in Christ Jesus. It's really as simple as that. (laughs) I don't mean to oversimplify it, but that's literally it. We're saved through grace, by faith in Christ Jesus. There's no work that we can do to earn our salvation. Don't get me wrong, though. The works are nice when you do it as disciples of Christ. But we see oftentimes that individuals will engage in a sense of self-righteousness. They'll think they're doing God a favor by being so good. They'll think that they're earning themselves a place in heaven through their good works. But it's not the case. It is a gift from God. And this is consistent in the scripture as Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 states. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to the anger of God, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. I don't even have to keep reading, but I'm going to continue anyway. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's beautiful. You know who God is? The God of the Trinity. You know that once we're saved, we ought always serve. It's a reflection of the salvational status. And you know that we're saved through grace, by faith, in Christ alone. It's not our good works. And I just want to say today, if there's any aspect that you disagree on, perhaps there's somebody listening to me right now that's not even a Christian. I just want to offer this little challenge. In my walk with God, I went through several interesting phases. And arguably the most challenging one was the third one, where I was challenged by an individual I held in high esteem to study the work of atheists. And what it did was it led me to also study apologetics. And it gave me an objective grounding in the faith. I'm not going to call anybody out here, but I notice most Christians, most people in whatever worldview they're in, they're in it on the basis of an experience. I got my testimony. And their personal life story is just about all that they go by to justify and determine their faith. But the thing about Christianity here is the reason why I'm a Christian still to this day after studying so many different things is that comparative to other religions, Christianity is just about the only one that can embrace its history. It can embrace its archaeology. It can embrace its historicity and consistency throughout the ages. If you're a member of another religion, just look at its historic consistency. Because when you look at the apologetics of most other religions, what you'll find is in the modern day, they'll glorify and raise some individual higher up as though they have spiritual and divine revelation perpetually. And then they'll tell everybody else under them, just believe. We see it a lot, as a matter of fact. So if you don't agree, 
check your sources, historicity. Are you just believing by emotion? You just believing by a testimony. And to further back myself up, I preach sermons about this. I preach sermons about arguments for God. You can go to brothersoftheword.com and listen to it free. Just type in love God. I made an apologetical argument for God. My favorite one was an argument for the Bible, though, and its objectivity. It's got some real valid stuff. We're looking at over 25,000 archaeological digs and not one of them disproved the Bible. We're looking at prophecies that are so incredibly improbable, I don't even think there's a number for the odds. (laughs) And the title of that sermon is Fearless Faith, Courageous Christians. So if you want to check me out, you want to see why I believe the Bible objectively? Check those out. But my challenge for you, if you don't agree, if you're a part of another religion, is to just do what I did and look at the opposing views to your views. Does your view legitimately hold up against critique? Or do you have to rely on something that, to be quite frank, don't make no sense? This is my sermon for today. I hope that you enjoyed. Thank you. You are listening to brothersoftheword.com. This was the message titled Fundamental Issues by George Bronner. This message is number 4109. That's 4109. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4109 to a friend, go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to iwanttogive.com. That's iwanttogive.com. Listen to brothersoftheword.com often because, brother, you need the word. Oh, brothers of the word.